Well, good evening, good morning, good afternoon, wherever you are in the world, and welcome to Dose Nation. I'm your host, Jake Kettle, and thanks for joining us. With me, as always, is founder of DoseNation.com and author of Psychedelic Information Theory, James Ken. James, how are you today? I'm doing very well, and um, I think this is going to be an interesting talk because these are all topics that I'm very, very familiar with. So Yeah, and that a lot of people have been talking about uh, lately in the psychedelic community, too. So why don't we just go right in and introduce our guests because I really want to get into uh, to the show today. Thomas Roberts is, is a, a professor emeritus of educational psychology at Northern Illinois University. Hold, he holds a Ph.D. in educational psychology from Sanford University and is the author of numerous publications and books on learning theory, cognitive enhancement, and the use of psychedelics in therapy. His latest book is The Psychedelic Future of the Mind, How Entheogens Are Enhancing Cognition, Boosting Intelligence, and Raising Values. Thomas, welcome to the program. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for inviting me. I wanted to uh, start off this conversation a little bit by discussing the field of educational psychology because it's basically the psychology of how people learn, correct? Uh, yes. The big questions are what is the nature of the human mind and how do we develop it best? And over your course of uh, your career, what do you think is the nature of human mind? What, what do you think are the best techniques for people to uh, enhance their mind? Boy, I wish I could give you a good, clear answer. There's so many leads, and everybody sort of has his or her own view of that. Whatever the an- it's going to be a collection of answers, and whatever the answers are, they're going to have to inter- interact with each other. And there's everything from good old conditioning through the uses of drugs and hypnosis, uh, dream work, all kinds of different ways of using the human mind, and a lot of them we aren't paying much attention to now. Well, let me let me back up and ask a question about um, what educational theory is 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 been fascinating to me uh, ever since I really learned how to uh, use my own brain. And what I've come to the conclusion is ba- basically humans are learning all the time. The brain is just an information absorbing machine, and it's trying to, it's trying to learn all the time. That's right. What works best? I mean, when when you're trying to design an educational system for something, what are the key, key factors that you need the the person who's doing the learning to, you know, to be looking for in them? I mean, what, how do you engage somebody in the learning process so it sticks? And Well, the best thing is to get them interested in what they're, what they're, they're looking at. You go with the human interest that, that's already there. Now, of course, that's not always possible when we get to school subjects. But once somebody is interested in something, that's telling you that that person will want to learn as much as they can. And there are a lot of different theories of education, and they disagree on a lot. But one thing they all agree on is you learn what you practice. So whatever you practice, that's the important thing to do, whether it's an instrument or a cognitive skill or a physical skill or anything else. So it's more about daily practice as a is instead of being able to like absorb a paragraph of information all at once. Well, the more you practice absorbing, the better you're going to get at it. I see. So, so that's the way you learn through through reading a paragraph of information. The more you do it, the quicker you will absorb information presented to you that way. Yeah, that's right. And and the, there are a couple of real puzzling things is that under some situations what seems normally to would take a long time to learn can be learned rather quickly. That's what I find so interesting about psychedelics, is people can have insights 
that will change the way they think about themselves or other people immediately. Uh, there's the we already know there's there's such things as a traumatic experience, and this will influence somebody from that point on in a negative way. And the thing I'm wondering about is if there's a negative experience, a traumatic experience, is there the opposite, a very powerful positive experience that would also influence the person from then on? And this is where I think mystical experiences come in. So it would be an anti-trauma, more like um, a stimulating yeah. experience or a catalytic experience. Yes. Right. So, and so I, we, I want. We, yeah, go, go ahead. ahead. Go ahead. I, I just wanted to say that it seems like what you were saying in the in the last the last section that you just put out there, people sometimes put up barriers to learning new things because of this or that, and well, we sure they do. they shut down to learning specific topics because they think maybe they're overly complex. But then you add a stimulant or a catalyst, like say a psychedelic, or prod their interest with with something. That's, that's more stimulating. Suddenly those barriers can disappear and they become more open and receptive to, you know, in a way that they weren't before. Is that the kind of power that you're ascribing to psychedelics or is it, is it not well, that well, subtle well, or is it, I'm, I'm, well, sometimes they definitely do that. And the problem with psychedelics is all the answers are sometimes under the right conditions, not always mm-hmm. for some people. So it isn't anything that it, is going to work with everybody all the time, but it'll work with some people some of the time, and it'll work with some people a lot, and some people not at all. That's one of the confusing things about psychedelics. Right, because I know this from personal experience, and um, you know, from other people I've known. When I was younger, I tended to put up barriers um, to learning things like math or science because I just thought that they were they were just infinitely complex. Like the, you would never be able to learn everything there is to learn about biology, for instance. But somehow being exposed to psychedelics made that challenge not so daunting to me. And I decided, well, I, I, I'm going to live a long life. I might as well just just knuckle down and learn these things because there's no use avoiding it. And um, it was very stimulating to my my intellectual growth and my my uh, my curiosity. And I was I was wondering if there if you know of you know studies or from personal experience or clinical trials that this is indeed the case that people who are exposed to psychedelics actually do go on to be more interested in higher learning. My guess is that that's true, but I don't know of any real study that way. Although the people that I know who have done psychedelics often will have used them to develop an interest in a particular field. And it might be a spiritual field or a scientific field or suddenly become more aware of the, of the sounds of music or the, or the colors and textures and become artists. So it's an increased awareness that sort of catches people's minds and then they carry that on. Can, can I, uh, I just want to interject and ask a quick question. You Go said ahead. that, uh, it depends on what people are, are looking into or what subject it opens their minds for. Um, so just, just just on a quick side tangent, what are your thoughts on people who have, um, as as you mentioned just a minute ago, these profound uh, spiritual experiences on psychedelics that um, they did they don't have otherwise? That, well, that's one of my particular interests. Yeah, and same. I, I actually, likewise. Have, the first part of my book is all about that. Um, clearly these events happen. And most of the time, they don't happen with psychedelics. They've happened for who knows what reasons. But they also can, but don't always happen with psychedelics. In some of the recent research, uh, the stuff they've done at Johns Hopkins, for example, um, has actually given people 
mystical experiences or states of unity of consciousness. No, that's and the psilocybin studies uh, that Roland Griffith. Yeah, that's right. exactly oh, okay. right. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. And um, they're they're continuing those studies now. Actually, they're doing one now on um, uh, nicotine addiction. Hmm. That's interesting. And um, um, there isn't any hard data on that yet, but word is out that it seems to be working with a fair number of people. That you know, nicotine is the hardest drug to get off. Yeah, and I've heard this. Apparently, they're having pretty good results with it. As a, huh. with a psilocybin intervention. Yes, right. Wow. And, and it's important to know that it's not just the drug that does it, but the drug that does it in a structured therapeutic situation. So the psilocybin is used as an adjunct to a therapeutic situation. It's not just a matter of take the drug and don't do nicotine anymore. I have a I have a quick question before okay. we get back to the, the spiritual experience part of it. In, in, when in your uh, your studies in educational psychology, have you ever run across um, you know any any hard scientific evidence or studies or indications that daily meditation or daily prayer boosts boosts cognitive benefits, cognitive enhancement, or learning the ability to learn? I think those studies are out there, but I can't cite them. That's sort of like tangential to what I'm interested in. Right. But um, it certainly seems like it'd be there. For one reason, as we pay attention to our minds, we learn to be able to use them better. And one of the things that some types of, of meditation do is to teach you to be aware of their minds and to really to take control of their minds rather than letting the minds sort of run around with them. And, of course, this is exactly what ought, what ought to happen in learning. So I'm, I'm pretty sure that information is there. Um, Richard Davidson at the University of Wisconsin is the person I'd ask about that. Okay. That's, that's, that's fine. The reason I, I went off on the spiritual tangent is because uh, in some of the reading that I've done, there's been a parallel between the peak mystical experience that, that is um, experienced by ascetics who go out into the desert or who go and, you know, go into a cave in, you know, uh, the Himalayas or go into, the you know, a cave in the deserts of Egypt, and they meditate, and they have these uh, profound mystical experiences, and they pull, uh, you know, different kinds of information, and, and they uh, have different kinds of, di of disassociations and reassociations in their mind, um, which parallels the psychedelic experience, as we had uh, spoken about. So, wh wh what are your thoughts on the parallel between the two? I've never really heard a, um, a satisfactory answer about, about that. Okay, the way I think about that is that when those events occur, something is going on in our brain or, or our whole nervous system. And there are a number of ways of doing getting to the same combination of events in a nervous system. So some might do it um, through, you know, meditation and, and um, being alone in the desert. Somebody might do it through drugs. Some might do it through chanting. Some might do it through speaking in tongues. And there are a number of ways of getting into this either the same or very similar and kind of overlapping states of mind. I prefer to use mind-body states rather than states of consciousness and as, as the way to talk about those. So there are a number of different ways of doing them, and sometimes apparently they happen to people that are just walking along, living their ordinary lives, and it happens. So, for example, if I'm going to Chicago, I could drive, I could take the train, or I could walk, or I could ride a horse, and sort of the same thing in the brain. If I, if I wanted to get into a particular brain states are a number of different ways of getting there. And that's the way I see that, that question. Is it something the same or very similar things are going on in the brain? 
Um, Andrew Newberg at the University of Pennsylvania has been looking at this. He he's a, has a wonderful joint appointment. Um, he's in uh, psychology, uh, radiology, and religion. And so he's looking basically at that question of what happens with people's minds when they have mystical experiences. And he's studied different types of people having different experiences and finds that they come in, in not the same but very similar brain states when they have those experiences. Yeah, that's the question, of course, is how you interpret those. Right. And I think the way that I, I mean, in the context of this conversation, I think the way that I interpret those spiritual experiences is they are, um, whether, whether it's through, um, you know, mysticism or a psychedelic drug or, or some other means, they are catalysts that do stimulate curiosity and learning. And, yes. and, and I think really, when you get down to it, the process of learning is really completely and wholly dependent on neuroplasticity in the brain. Building new connections, strengthening connections, pairing off old connections, rerouting connections to make new connections between old uh, ideas. So, so do you, do you consider, um, psychedelics and mystical states to be catalysts for neuroplasticity and brain change? I mean, sometimes radical brain change? Um, very likely, but I don't know anybody who has actually looked at the physiology of that question. Mm-hmm. Although I expect the people are looking at it. Volnweider in Switzerland is probably right. a mm-hmm. leader in that field. Sure. Um, and yeah, and, and, uh, this, remember, it wasn't, it wasn't very long ago that people really started to talk about neuroplasticity. Mm-hmm. Up to probably, I don't know, maybe 10 or 12 years ago, people didn't realize that. Not only that, they thought that you know, the brain matured early in the 20s, and so from there on it was downhill all the way. And now we find out that, you know, old people in their 60s and 70s and 80s can also make changes in the brain and continue to learn. So it's a whole new approach to the human brain. And now we're getting to the point where people are getting insights en- enough about how neurotransmitters work and how, s- and how cells work so that we're beginning, we're, we're taking our knowledge down a bunch of levels and what happens is the first thing people discover something and then they start applying it to illnesses, say Alzheimer's disease or Parkinson's, and then somebody says, well, can we use this with a positive result for sort of mentally healthy people? And I think that's the the threshold that's right in front of us. So we aren't quite there yet. Yeah, it's um cosmetic pharmacology or cognitive okay. enhancement. Um what do you what do you I mean cognitive enhancement to me seems to be such a broad term. Can you tell me uh, just kind of a, a a paragraph definition of what you consider cognitive enhancement to be? Yeah, I think there are two kinds and most people talk about one kind. The first kind that people talk about is improving the cognitive abilities we have before. For example, increased memory, better perception, being able to link ideas together, you know, using our, our current mind-body state, our current mind in a more uh, productive, efficient way. Now, the second part that I find is interesting in cognitive enhancement is the ability to use our cognitive, to use our, co- to use new cognitive processes, not just improve the ones we have. Okay? So, uh, and an analogy here is like if somebody has a computer, you can write a large number of programs for a computer. And if somebody has a mind, you can write a large number of programs for the mind. But basically, 
we're stuck like somebody who's using just one program on the computer and we're trying to improve that program. That's our ordinary cognitive system. And yet we can introduce a large number of other programs, other cognitive systems that may be able to do entirely different things with our brains and our mind. That's the intriguing question I have. And then, who are going to be the people who design those techniques? Just like there are programmers for computers, are they going to be like mind design people or neuroarchitects or, or cognitive artists for our minds? And that's the big question that I have. Um, and actually we see this a little bit with psychedelics when people are actually, psychedelics put a different program in your mind and hypnosis and meditation and you know, um, lucid dreaming. Yeah, right. These are once we look at these as different apps for our mind, suddenly realize that they may have their own uses, just like any other apps have uses, and they're good for some things, they're not good for others, and we can write virtually an un unlimited number of apps. Right, and that reminds me of um, you know these mind machines with the uh, strobe lights and headphones that uh, that 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 are supposed to entrain brain waves into different frequency ranges, and um, I know people who make those and they program them and they write custom programs to design the brain to go into you know boutique states that are only available to people who have this technology. So I think that what you're talking about is like neural programmers that. I mean, that idea sort of exists, and I know DJs who who program music for large events um, specifically to try and 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 move people towards custom brain states um, just oh. for that venue. So it's it's I, the technology can come in a lot of different forms, whether it's digital or a wire in the brain or or program music or performance. Yeah. Or something even as simple as like holotropic breathing or or medita yeah. meditation techniques. Those are all sort of custom programs that we run. I think it's handy to think of the word as, as a psychotechnology. Psychotechnologist. Yeah, right. Um, and and those are all psychotechnologies, just like we have electronic technologies. So tell us um, a bit about the book, uh, Psychedelic Future of Mind. Uh, what do you envision as, as the psychedelic future? Aren't we already sort of living in the psychedelic future of mind? Didn't that, didn't that whole process start back in the 50s or so? Well, I, yeah, I think that's, that sort of might be the, 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 pre uh, the preface to the book, the certainly beginning of things. But what I want to do is, is have these areas sort of systematically investigated, you know, in research institutes and universities and hospitals and so forth, rather than just have it uh, casually done out, you know, sort of, and move people around. And I think that what we're, what we're approaching now, and my particular interest, I'm, for example, I'm going to be speaking at um, the Horizons Conference in New York in October. Mm -hmm. I want to point out the possibilities that are entirely missed, not no, entirely too strong, almost entirely missed, for the humanities and the liberal arts. Because we all know there's a lot that's done in, in music and art. There's a lot that's being done now in psychotherapy. But that's just the beginning. I mean, all of the humanities can benefit from using um, insights from psychedelics or even doing research with psychedelics um, to get different perspectives on their own, on their own field. Let me give you an example of that. One of my favorite books, is by Benny Shannon, who is a professor at Hebrew University in Israel. And he's written a book called The Antipodes of the Mind. Mm -hmm. He went to uh, South America, had 
extensive ayahuasca experiences, interviewed a bunch of people, both Westerners and, and non-Westerners, and, and in this book takes a, a combination of cognitive psychology, which is one of his specialties, and anthropology and other specialties, and breeds them together for the mutual benefit. So I like to see that done, you know, in, in history and political science and education every other field. I think these are... I, mean, I think we, we, we're just beginning to scratch the surface on what's possible here when we think about all these various fields that might benefit from not just using psychedelics as a, uh, as a learning technique or a psychotherapeutic technique, but a way of sort of stepping back and getting perspective on one's own field. So he does that in that book just beautifully. So that, what, that's the move that I see coming along. I don't want to. I don't want to date you too much. But when did you start your academic career? Um, well, I don't mind being dated. Um, <laughs> I graduated from Hamilton College in Upstate New York in 1961. Okay, and what had you ex- encountered psychedelics at that point? No, I hadn't encountered psychedelics uh, until I was working in my doctoral program at Stanford, and I had my first trip in February of 1970. And was that an LSD or psilocybin? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, it was LSD up at the Lake Tahoe on a beautiful winter's day. Ah, uh, Lake Tahoe. Yes. Interesting beautiful. place. Uh, was it a large dose or uh, was it a 70s dose? <laughs> um, looking back on it, I think it must have been sort of a medium dose. I mean, I was, you know, functioning and walking around and, you know, doing things, but I could sort of get into the, the beauty of the clouds and the water and everything else, and and uh, so I, my guess now is probably must have been a moderate dose. I don't know, maybe 150, 200 micrograms or something. And were you exposed to it because you were studying psychology, or was that sort of a happenstance? Um, well, I was interested in the human mind and didn't have anything particularly to do with psychology, but because I was interested in the mind, and this was, I've heard people heard people saying things about it and um, it just sounded it was outside my realm of experience and yet the people who were talking about it were really quite positive and it was clear they weren't able to express something um, the, the reason I the way I first ran across it I had a, a course at Stanford called a graduate special the human potential hmm. and there were um, there were so many people trying to get into it it was limited to 30 people I had to wait like two or three semesters in a waiting list to get in. And one day um, in a class, a married couple who were taking it came and they started talking about their first LSD experience the previous Saturday and watching the flowers in the vase move and so forth. Now, my background at that time was sort of imagine the DEA's worst picture of a drug addict. Mm-hmm. Okay, you know, long fingernails and scraggy looking and scary. And these are... Well, these are graduate students at Stanford, and the whole room was graduate students at Stanford from a number of different fields. <clears throat> and about two-thirds of them very clearly knew what they were talking about and nodded and asked them questions as somebody who was experienced. So two-thirds, this, you think two-thirds of the, the classmates yeah, had already right. been exposed to LSD? Yeah, right. Wow, okay. So that sort of got me really wondering. I mean, you know, um, and then by a good fortune, um, one of the students had a, uh, took us to a, a lecture by this guy I'd never heard of, some um, Englishman who was a, a priest and a philosopher, and he gave me his ticket because he couldn't go. Well, I heard Alan Watts talk about the meeting of East and West 
um, religion and psychedelics. And mm-hmm. that just blew me away to hear this erudite Britain talking about all this stuff. So that really opened my mind that there were some possibilities there that were far beyond what I imagined. And so that first um, LSD trip at, at Tahoe, you already had a bit of a framework for the mind and educational experience. Um, were you thinking about that when you tried it for the first time, or did you just sort of go, oh, well, we'll see what happens? <clears throat> well, I intentionally didn't read anything. Oh, okay. Uh, I had a um, master's in Houston's book, Variety of Psychedelic Experience, but I didn't want to set my mind to certain expectations. So okay. I didn't need that until after I came. So back. you sort of you sort of did an anti-priming where you just sort of cleared yourself to expectations before you. Yeah, it was sort of well, let's see what happens attitude. Right. Yeah. Okay. And and I think that was a good way for me to go. I don't know if it would be for other people, but I did the same thing when I first did ayahuasca. I was in a group and people sort of said their expectations, and my expectation was just, well, let's see what happens. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And I find that's I find that's typical with um with people who are who are coming at it from a more curiosity or academic standpoint as opposed to like searching for something. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> I suppose that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, my it's it's funny that you say that because uh my first encounter with psychedelics it was it was one of those things where I said, uh, "Well, you know, everybody's talking about this, you know, but I don't, you know, what is it?" <laughs> Yeah. So, you know, it's just, it was more of a, it's, it is more of a curiosity. Um, and I think that when you approach it that way without having any kind of bias, because I think a lot of people approach it of, hey man, we're going to go to a festival, we're going to trip out, and we're going to have this great time, <laughs> you know, and it's, you know, and it's going to be great. And, you know, but when you approach it from that perspective of curiosity, like James says, I think that you find that the experience is a little, well, a lot different. Um, than yeah. just going, you know, going, taking it and going to a, I don't know, a fish show or whatever you want to. Yeah. Well, in, in my class, which starts next Monday, in fact, the first book we read is uh, Huxley's Doors of Perception. Oh, mm-hmm. okay. Fantastic. And, and I tell my class, you know, Huxley had Huxley's trip. Yeah. And other people thought that if they had LSD, they would have the same sort of experience, but everybody has his or her own trip. And that's one of the confusing things, and that's why psychedelics were so confusing at first. People, were were familiar with a few you know psychoactive drugs and they had a pretty predictable experience you know like with medical drugs you know if you took this this was likely to happen but with psychedelics there was no telling and that was what really scared and frightened and confused people at first I mean now we know about set and setting and and we know that Huxley had Huxley's trip and somebody else would have their own trip so it's it's not it's not so confusing now right because the individual Tripped is is dependent upon the you know the mind state of the the, the mind body state of the person who exactly, is who right, suggesting right. the substance. But imagine how scary it was when people didn't know that. Right, they'd like have, the they'd pioneers. Have a trip one day and then the next day they take the same or days later the same amount of the same batch and have an entirely different experience. Yeah, it's like I uh, the metaphor I have is if if you had a time machine that could take you anywhere in the universe, would you want to set the dial to a specific time first, or would you just say take me wherever? <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. You would, you would, you would, you would, you would, you'd want to set the well. You'd want to set the dial because who knows? You might end up in the middle of uh, you know the Battle of Zama That's or something. That's right. And you if know? you don't, you know, pay a little bit of attention to what the dial is set to before you start the trip, you could end up somewhere that's that's just crazy beyond your your, you know, beyond where you ever wanted to go. And I that think I think happens to a lot of people who experiment with psychedelics yeah, over yeah. you know over a period of time. They realize, oh, there's a dose range and there's a setting. That's definitely bad. We don't want to 
we don't want to do that. Now, but maybe yeah, if it, this dose range is done in a more controlled setting, it will work just fine. There's actually a, spe- a specific entheogen or entheogenic compound that I wanted to ask you about. Um, William James uh, did a lot of research on it in the, I, I guess it was late 1800s, mid-1800s, nitrous oxide. And he became known as the nitrous oxide philosopher. Um <laughs> <laughs> what am I, uh, and actually one of, one of my favorite books is The Will to Believe, which he wrote. Um, what are your thoughts on, uh, on, on that type of experience? Would you consider, it is a disassociative, well, but would you consider that to be the same kind of psychedelic experience or the same kind of psychotropic experience? Or is that um, something I've that you would I've only tried put- nitrous oxide two or maybe three times. And I think I didn't inhale enough or it didn't work very well or something. So I can't really give you an informed experience, an informed opinion. But from what it, what I've heard is it, it's a different kind of drug. Well, I would I would answer that question by saying if somebody had never been exposed to nitrous oxide before, and you made it part of a spiritual ritual, where at the end of say a fifteen minute net meditation, everybody was given the mask and inhaled to you know behold the mystery for you know five minutes and then they were able to take off the mask and talk about what they saw it could be used like a psychedelic it could stimulate the mind like a psychedelic but i think the problem with nitrous oxide is people just use it over and over and over and over again the mis- the mysterious quality of it is sort of um taken away hammered hammered away by the mm. by the um anesthetic properties of it um which people find more attractive i think you just inhale to the point where you're almost passed out but not quite and then let it let it drip off of you uh-huh. um, which is which is a little bit different than what you do on psychedelics yeah very well, different. one of my fantasies is an airline called magic carpet airlines and they're flying and you know how the oxygen thing can drop down and you right. inhale it mm-hmm. well it drops down but it has nitrous oxide <laughs> oh, that sounds great when can i when can i book my first flight yeah right. <laughs> I want to. I want a. Uh, I want a. Uh, I want a uh, international trip all the way around the world, starting from one airport and then ending at the same airport. <laughs> uh, you can take off at of San Francisco and end at Oakland and have, think you went around the world. Oh yeah, yeah you probably <laughs> will think you went around the world. I have no yeah. idea how long we've been in the air. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, you, you know, you got the oxygen. Hey, you know what's going on up here? Right. Am I on an airplane? You know. Okay, so I want to go back to that Tahoe experience, and and let's talk about as you were coming down off the tail end of that experience. What were you thinking about? Were you were you thinking about the potential of this drug? And and, and yeah, I, I know exactly what I was thinking. I think this is really interesting. This is really interesting. What's going on here? Okay, and 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 you know that really piqued my interest in you know in the human mind and and. and and ways of doing different things with it and experiencing different things. So that really sort of, um, sort of set, set my career path or start, it was one of the things that set my career path to say, I want to look into this and find out what this is and what's going on. So. And, and you, um, unfortunately started your academic career right when probably the harshest restrictions on, on doing any research were put into place. Uh, how did, yeah. How how did you cope through that doctorate and postdoctorate with this newfound interest in psychedelics and yet no way to really study them legitimately? Yeah, well, um, in my um, I taught a graduate course uh, at the master's level in educational psychology, and the approach I took was to look at four different psychologies, the way they apply to education, 
and the fifth, uh, the fourth one was transpersonal psychology. Mm-hmm. So we would talk about you know meditation and yoga and uh, a little bit on uh, psychedelics, not much. And then I went to a, a conference in Iceland in 1972 because up to that time I had seen this as being more of a personal interest, no way to get into it professionally or academically. Mm-hmm. But the speakers were Stan Groff and Houston Smith and Joseph Campbell, and I realized there was a whole academic way to get into this. So I came back and I started to enrich that part of my, of the psychedelic part of my course. And then, um, in 1981, so I'd been teaching them, let's see, for about eight years, I guess. Um, um, I, I started offering my course, uh, called Psychedelic Research. And it was taught as a one-shot, directed readings, um, kind of course. You know, the stuff that's offered once. And then I would offer it again, and then I would offer it again. And basically, I ended up offering it um, once or twice or even three times a year. So, because yeah. people were so interested in it? Yeah, basically. Um, it, it, um, they were actually quite small um, enrollments because people also didn't want this to appear in their transcript and for understandable reasons. Um, <laughs> so... Um, um, and that's funny because the that is that is very eighties. Oh yeah, yes, <laughs> yes, very much. And um, so, but then in uh, in nineteen eighty, well, let's see. I I, taught, I kept on teaching it on this one shot basis. Once in a while, I changed the name. I I found out that the word research scared people away because they thought they're going to have to do a lot of statistics. Mm. So I, for a while, I called it psychedelic mind view, which mm-hmm. I think was a pretty good title. Uh, a friend of mine is using that now. At, College of DuPage, a community college uh, near Chicago. And um, then finally, um, in uh, like 2000 or 2001, my assistant department chair said that I should try to get it listed as a catalog course hmm. rather than as these one-shot things. I didn't think there was much chance in that. At first, it was turned down by the college curriculum committee, but then they reconsidered it, and it actually got approved as a college course early in the 2000s. I'm not sure the exact year. Now, what were the texts that you were using there? I mean, what what sort of okay. materials were you... Okay. Um, well, they would, of course, change from year to year. I always would use Stan Groff's Realms of the Human Unconscious, which has been republished as LSD Doorways to the Numinous. Mm-hmm. And I always use Huxley's Doors of Perception, although one year it wasn't available. <clears throat> and then I'd rotate other books in. I would always have a book about um, the political... Activity at the time, I use uh, Stevens' um, book, Storming Heaven. Oh, Jay Stevens, yeah, that's a great yeah. book. I love that. Yeah, yeah. That that's was, I, was I think, maybe after my first LSD experience, which was very much like yours, except up at Big Bear instead of Lake Tahoe. Oh, neat. Um, that was maybe one of the first books I read. Yeah, yeah. Well, actually, I've dropped it now yeah. um, <laughs> um, because I've inserted um, Higher Wisdom. Oh, yes. Uh-huh. Um, because, you know, here we have people who've done a lot of psychedelics and, and uh, people thought about the field for a long time. And then starting um, this fall, um, after Groff's book, we're going to start with Huxley and then go to Groff and then do my my book, um, and then we'll do um, Higher Wisdom. And there are so many books coming along that I have the students choose a book of their own and read it and report back to the class. And sometimes it's in their major, or sometimes it's something entirely new. And um, it's, I also often find out about new books that I hadn't known about coming that way. So 
And as you know, you know, books are coming along regularly now. For a long time, there was a desert of no books. Oh yeah, like yeah. Well, it's yeah, it's exploding now. I think people are are more willing to come out and talk about not only their personal experiences, but new modalities of of thinking and, and using yeah. substances in in novel ways. And there's there's that good you know solid scientific research that they're doing with Hop, Johns Hopkins and Bellevue and uh, medical school in, in California. So that gives a, a real and then publications like The Economist and The New Yorker and and um, Scientific American have, have articles about the sort of renaissance in psychedelics. So that's helpful. And, right. And it's hope- becoming a little bit more mainstream. People yeah. are accepting that there is at least some benefit in the right settings and there's enough people who've been exposed to it who have not gone crazy to make those old myths sort of passe at this point. Yeah, right. And and actually, an interesting thing is it's been around so long that it's kind of like, um, you know, this is your father's drug. You know, we're not interested in that. <laughs> Thanks. Dad did that or granddad did that. So um, actually, young people are not into psychedelics as much as they were, let's say, in the 60s. But, you know, new things are coming along. Now, in, in uh, your Psychedelic Mind Views course, it sounds like you're teaching... A little bit more about how psychedelics can be used to create a, a paradigm shift on the way we view ourselves or the way we view culture or the way we view the political relations as opposed to getting into, say, human psychology and behavior or the neuroscience. Yeah, we don't go into the neuroscience direction. Basically, I don't mm-hmm. have much knowledge in that direction. I've had a couple of speakers uh, come in once in a while who are neuropsychologists. Mm-hmm. And they will give like a good lecture on, you know, what plugs in where and, and what serotonin does and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, and we read Grau's book for the sort of psychotherapy angle on it. And then um, Puxley, of course, t- gets into religion and philosophy, just touches on it. And in my book, I sort of try to point out new directions that are coming along. And Higher Wisdom has a lot on um, spiritual and um, therapeutic use. So I'm trying to, I try to cover the waterfront. And my students, by the way, are in the honors program and they're all juniors and seniors. And, um, they're going to be probably 15 to 20 of them in any class. So it's a small enough seminar so that we can have good discussions going every day. And that's an important part of the class. I want to uh, ask a sticky, sort of a sticky question. With psychedelics, is there really any way to totally detach the therapeutic side of it from the spiritual side of it, or are they the same thing? Uh, yes. Um, um, I use Groff's ideas of being two types of, of psychotherapy. One is the um, high-dose mystical experience unitive consciousness therapy, and the other is a, a smaller dose, he called it psycholytic psychotherapy, mm-hmm. and that is used just to bring up unconscious memories that have been repressed and and then they're worked through during not they're worked through during a um, psychotherapeutic discussion with the therapist so let's and let's and go back psycho- and talk, let's yeah. talk about the um the merging with the unity uh what was it okay well the one that people think of is, is sort of is where you have uh, a a powerful overwhelming dose 
and the purpose of it is to produce a, a peak experience or a mystical experience or unitive consciousness. Unitive consciousness. Now, that's a, that's a Groff term. Um, I or think it's a general. I think it's a general psychological term. A general psychological term. Unitive consciousness, which means a it's sense a of dropping identification with the ego and feeling united with anything from a piece of music to the whole com. Uh, cosmos. I see. Unitive consciousness can be it's either localized, uh, ob- objectified, or contain everything. Yeah. Uh, now, usually it's spoken of as containing everything or, or an awful, containing an awful lot. I see. But it could also be objectified, like becoming one with your TV or something. Yes. Okay. Yes. <laughs> or the thumbnail or whatever. Right. But 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 this the, the psychotherapeutic effect is when you drop um, your ego temporarily, and then you drop all the ego motivations and ego fears and all those things that the ego has. And the ego's on, and we need an ego to function, but we don't want to over-identify with the ego. Of course, this is where Buddhism comes in. And, and that's psychology. transpersonal psychology, too. Is exactly. Really the right. root of transpersonal that. beyond ego. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, there's, an art, there's a book coming out next spring called Handbook of Transpersonal Psychology, and Michael Winkleman and I have a chapter on on the use of psychedelics and transpersonal psychology and the interplay between those two fields. And um, transpersonal psychology largely got started due to psychedelics, not entirely, but largely. And it seemed to me, like you said, to be like a bastion for people who are interested in psychedelics, but there was no actual psychedelic research field to go into. It was maybe the closest... Yeah, <laughs> the closest yeah. logical hit. So a lot of people who were interested in psychedelics wound up in that field. I think they they wound up in that, or they wound up in uh, cultural anthropology. So this, you know, to study shaman. or yeah, entheobotany or yeah, something. Or ethno- yes, that's exactly right. Uh, yeah. Because the, anth- the the anthropological field studies psychedelics, but you know, only within the context of you know indigenous ritual, really. Right. Right. And um, um I mean, that, that's a vast field, as you know, and just huge. Um, but most of it is, as you say, within the culture, and they look at how, what does this culture use and how do they use it and what do they think about it and so forth. And now, of course, what's happening is that we're getting these imports from all these other cultures. You know, ayahuasca and ibogaine and so forth. And are, are, we're not just importing, you know, cars and stuff from around the world, but also psychoactive psychotechnologies. So and, all, this, yeah. this and also cosmologies, too. Right, there could be the, the the drug ayahuasca comes with a built-in mythos. I mean, right. it's it's more than just a, a drug. It's its own it's its own mem- viral mimetic package. What I find even more fascinating is the fact that the cosmology of the ayahuasca is being blended with other cosmologies that have been brought in from the West and South America, and uh, you know, I mean, that, that's an entirely different topic on its own, but. It's fascinating to see the blending of the two cosmologies coming together, or the cross-pollination between yes. these two, like, uh, for example, Catholicism and uh, and ayahuasca, or yes. Um, yes. or the cross-pollination in Africa um, between certain indigenous religions and, and certain or, uh, Orthodox and Muslim teachings and things like that. So, uh, be- like ibogaine and things like that that are used in well, Africa. Yeah, the New Age came out of sort of the blending of of Christian ideals with um, sort of Navajo spiritual wisdom that peyote people 
liked, and then that sort of blended into the Eastern Buddhist philosophies, and then it was just like a mishmash of crystals and transcendental meditation. And then everything just kind of went like this. And burning sage, and uh, you know, yeah. it's just uh, it's just like a little bit of everything. And everything and just kind like, of like expanded and expanded and expanded and expanded. Right. I mean, and, and and new things are coming along too as oh, drugs sure. are developed, and new yeah. meditation. And we live in an incredibly rich culture internationally with all this mind stuff. Would you say it's a bad? Um, it, it would be a bad position to take to 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 encourage someone to choose a single cosmology to work with to achieve uh, that mystical goal or whatever goal they're looking to achieve. Or do you think well, that's that a question I ask myself, and, and I'm not very satisfied with my answer. Mm-hmm. My answer is that it's probably all right as long as they'll keep on going. I figure if the people will keep on going into some cosmology or philosophy or psychology, and they go far enough, they'll realize that it starts to be connected with other things. But the problem is people sometimes stop along the way, you know, and sort of freeze where they are and think, okay, this is it. This is the final answer. And only my answer is the right answer. I see, and, and they stop. The they stop learning and integrating. Yeah, right, right. Mm. But of course, I and mean, thanks to the internet and, and conferences, I and mean, people are more and more getting the idea that you know any particular religion is a particular among a whole a whole collection of them. The, the move that I see going on now is a is a movement from religion that's based on text and words like beliefs, um, dogma printed word, uh, homiletics, lectures, and I think we're moving away from a word-oriented religion to experience-oriented religion. Well, Practice-oriented, that's, right. that's what I call it. Well, right, practice-oriented. I think that, yeah. I think that, right. that uh, the, the, the practice is incredibly important. I mean, obviously, it's important to read and to know what you're talking about and what you're practicing, but if you read it all and you don't practice any of it, what is so the you real? Don't experience right, it. Right, you don't experience it. So, what is the real benefit? Um, right. And yeah, so and I think that's the big change we're going through. I think this is as big as the Gutenberg Revolution 500 years ago. And, and well, one of my chapters in the book is about that. One of the interesting is changing the nature of what religion is. One of the interesting things that I found is that if you, um, I was reading a study, I can't remember it, so don't quote me on this, but I, I, I do remember reading a study a few months ago that said that people, uh, that, that within the Christian community, people are leaving the Protestant churches in favor of the liturgical churches, because, uh, churches that use liturgy, like the Catholic Church, the Orthodox Church, uh, the Lutheran Church to a, to a small extent uses liturgy, the, Ang- the Anglican Church, because they want that experiential end of the spirituality as opposed to just the reading and just the evangelization and just the text. They want that full experience. Um, so people have been veering more towards the liturgical churches um, that use and practice liturgy on a daily basis. I don't know if that has any uh, relation. but Well, my, my theory on that is church without ritual is school. Right. Sorry, <laughs> right. it's it's not it's not a spiritual experience. It's just you're listening to some guy get up and talk at you, right? Without actually receiving anything back, or right. or, or participating in in a ceremony or a or a uh, ritual in any kind of way. Right, or it's like going to a restaurant, reading the menu, and then leaving. <laughs> right. Yeah. Hey, you know what? Everything looks great, but I'm not going to order anything. Just give me coffee. Yeah. Right. You know? Right. I'll just have yeah. coffee. But all all these psychotechnologies that are coming along now are making experiences more available to people. And this is the big thing that's going on. You know, just, you know, whether it's, you know, meditation or Abigain or psychedelics or 
breathing techniques or chanting or isolation. I mean, all this stuff is going on now. So we're, we're, there's more, lot, a lot of experiences available out there, and people are, I think, looking for more direct experience of uh, direct experience. What I was going to say, direct experience of the sacred is more accurate to say an experience which they will label sacred. I have a, I have a. Now that we've gotten all out of the way, I have the hard question for you now. Uh oh. Given that we have all of these new technologies to explore the modalities of our brain, is there evidence or some sort of trending evidence that you can see that cognition is improving overall and that our perception and perspicacity is indeed becoming more acute as more acute as we're exposed to these substances and ideas. You have just invented an absolutely fantastic doctor dissertation. I don't know anyone who's really looked at that. There must be cognitive psychologists who are looking at things on a global scale, but I don't know of that. Of course, I mean, just as people are getting healthier and being better fed, I mean, that helps cognition, but that's kind of a side question to what you're asking. Well, let's, let's, like, we can break it down from a, a global trend to say, interpersonally, people that you know and interact with, do you perceive cognitive benefits in people who are exposed to these new modalities? I think so. Um, actually, one thing I've noticed is that um, several of my friends, um, over the years have picked up uh, meditation and have been doing meditation for quite a while, and their writing has improved. Hmm. They're able to say exactly what they want very precisely and very clearly, and um, their their thinking and their writing has gotten a lot clearer. At least it seems that way to me. Now, I don't know, you know if that is a connection, or maybe they've just gotten to be better writers. Or maybe enhanced self-awareness. Yes, right. Yeah, I, I think that that's true, um, and I notice a lot of people in transpersonal psychology and in psychedelics seem to be pretty clear thinkers. Of course, there are a lot of confused psychedelic people too. Yes, um, but a lot, but those who've been able to integrate the experience, and this is why I think it should be done in a in a situation that helps people not just have the experience, but make sense out of it and integrate it and work it into their lives, not just you know drop acid and freak out and then go to work on Monday. <laughs> now, uh, let me ask, do you think that there is any, um, th- th- do you think that there does come a point where people say, I don't need the psychedelics or the drugs anymore, I'm just going to do this through asceticism or through meditation or through whatever means that they choose to do it or through whatever cosmology, when they, ab- when they abandon the psychedelics say, and say, delve themselves into a cosmology, um, would you say that that will be taking a step forward or a step backwards? Um, I don't know whether it's forward or backward, but it clearly has happened. A lot of Americans who uh, got interested in Buddhism got interested in it through their psychedelic experiences. And then um, they recognize that psychedelics can sort of give you a, a preview of coming attractions, um, but that you really have to you know, meditate and or do yoga or whatever it is in order to to control it. Um, and the psychedelics are just sort of a, a handy trailer of what to expect. Um, and uh, and um, there have been a couple of studies of American Buddhists, 
and a very large number, I think it's well over half in most cases, got into Buddhism um, because of their psychedelic experiences. And and most of them think, well, it's useful, but you shouldn't get trapped into psychedelics. Um, right. Now, I suppose there are people in who in psychedelics who used to be Buddhists who might have the opposite opinion. I haven't seen any research on that, but that would be interesting to know. And almost everybody who is experienced in psychedelics recognize that it's helpful to have some sort of mind-body or spiritual um, a discipline. Exercise, discipline, yes, that's the word. Thanks, yeah, right. They seem to help each other out, and I certainly can believe that. And it, it seems to me um, what I see most often is that people sometimes are exposed to psychedelics and they attach themselves to one particular facet of it. Like they say, I was really amazed by the enhanced self-reflection and inner peace I felt. That sounds a lot like the Buddhist notion of enlightenment. Therefore, I am going to follow this thread and be, you know, explore enlightenment as much as I can. And there are other people who think, wow, I was really impressed by all of the crazy visions I saw. I'm going to explore more hallucinogens and see if I can create crazier visions through lucid dreaming or mind machines or, or, or whatever. And then there are other people who say, oh, I had a profound healing experience where I, I, I was able to mend this relationship with somebody that I was feuding with. Psychedelics must be an amazing transpersonal psychological tool, therefore I'm going to explore transpersonal psychology. And they, they kind of go off on the different paths and maybe Buddhism and enlightenment or, or meditation and, and monasticism is just sort of one facet of the experience that, that people can connect themselves to. Yes, and the problem is they're all right some of the time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's, that's right. Some of the time, that's the problem. Yeah. But none of them are right all of the time. But nobody's right all the time. No, 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 no. I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean, it would be unrealistic to to expect anything to be right a hundred percent of the time. And all that's, right. That's one of the real problems with using psychedelics is, is thinking that this great, wonderful insight that I've had must be, you know, the. The, the major insight in the world, and then finding out the next morning it wasn't so great. Yeah. <laughs> or nobody cares. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> All right, Thomas. Well, it's been wonderful talking to you. Uh, can you let people know uh, where they can find your book or more about you? Sure. Um, I have a website. All right. Um, it's, uh, uh, well, the usual beginning, and then uh, NIU as a Northern Illinois University, just the, the initials, slash, no, a dot, NIU dot, academia dot, edu, slash, Thomas Roberts. And we'll so have... If you just do a Google search for Thomas Roberts, it'll, it'll pop up. Right. And the name of your book is... Um, the Psychedelic Future of the Mind. Psychedelic Future of the Mind. And that is available on Amazon. Yes. That, by the way, Amazon has the best price. Right. And there's some wonderful reviews on there from, um, people that I'm sure you've heard of if you're, if you follow the psychedelic field. So, um, yes, it's a, it's an amazing work. And I really appreciate everything that you've done over the years to bring these issues to light. And the fact that you could actually teach a university course, um, starting from, you know, the 80s and, and keep it going all these years is just amazing. 
And, I uh, hope other people will pick up and start doing that now. Yeah, you know, it should it should be you know every liberal arts college should have one, and every uh, very science school should have uh, their version of it. So uh, absolutely, yeah. Well, Thomas, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. It was a fascinating topic. Um, e- email me, um, you know, your website or where it's going to be on so that I can send it out. Yeah, we'll, uh, we'll email you a link and, uh, we'll have the link to your book and your website up and, uh, Great. readers will be, listeners will be able to go there and find that. Uh, they'll also be able to find information about how you can, uh, donate or click through to Amazon to support us with your purchases. I wanted to uh, thank our listeners who have sent us donations recently. Yes, thank uh, you very much. We appreciate it. We will it. always email you back and thank you personally. And if you have questions for Jake or I, please feel free to contact us anytime. It's contact at dosenation.com. Uh, or you can get to our Facebook page, facebook.com slash dosenation. And we're really pretty good at at, uh, at responding at either of those places. So uh, feel free to drop us a line. Don't be shy. Yeah, and actually, please do. It's encouraged if you do. We we always enjoy our listener feedback, and uh, you can also follow us on Twitter at twitter.com. On iTunes. Yeah, well, you can uh, go, you go search Dose Nation on iTunes. You can subscribe to our iTunes feed and get all of our episodes there. You can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com forward slash Dose Nation, and there's and you can also go on YouTube, which is where we're going to start putting um some other things like the video of uh the uh, Benedictine Monastery that I just came back from. Um, it's youtube.com forward slash dose nation TV. So make sure you check that one out and we'll be putting some video content on that within the next couple of weeks. So, well, thanks for joining us, everybody. I'm your host, Jay Kettle. And of course, with me as always, founder of dosenation.com and author of psychedelic information theory, shamanism in the age of reason, James Kent. James. Pleasure as uh, I just wanted to thank Thomas Roberts again. Uh, I've, I've, no, I've known him for, him for a long time. I think I met him once at a conference, and I've never really had a chance to sit down and talk with him and say, well, thanks, thanks great. for inviting me. This has been fun. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. Do it again sometime. See you all next week. Thanks. Have a fantastic week, everybody.